Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining me for today's SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. I'm your host, Marty Bennett, and today on the Roundup, we're going to be going in-depth into three questions we've been hearing from international educators over the last seven days. Uh, it's been an interesting week all the way around uh, in terms of events happening in different countries related to COVID, uh, embassies and consulates reopening and some missteps along the way, the whole issues of visas and vaccinations I think will be a recurring theme throughout the summer months as we get closer to the start of the fall semester. But uh, today, as I do each week, I want to say thank you obviously to those that are watching live here on Facebook uh, and you really, your participation in this weekly chat uh, really makes a difference for me. Uh, those that are watching on repeat, either on our YouTube channel or the Facebook page for SMIE Consulting, thank you. Uh, we know you're all busy, but we appreciate you making time in your week to hear our thoughts on how uh, the uh, impact on the world our profession has and how our profession is impacted by events of the world. And lastly, special shout out to our podcast listeners uh, that make us a regular part of their weekly listening, whether on their walks, runs, or other uh, stress-relieving activities. Hopefully, uh, our words uh, help give some food for thought for you along your journey in our uh, robust and vibrant, vibrant international education profession. So let's get right to it. First question of the week for May 19th, 2021. How should we network moving forward? And I say this on the day before NAFSA's deadline uh, for registrants, early bird registrants for their upcoming virtual annual conference. Uh, and we've talked about NAFSA in the past. And to be honest, uh, this is a, I'm a bit conflicted about my relationship with NAFSA over the years. I've grown uh, quite a bit professionally due to uh, opportunities I've had to present at regional conferences back in the day but also uh, through leadership roles I've had in, our, uh, in, in a previous region in NAFSA, uh, as well as uh, work, working through our state consortia through the NAFSA Academy. I've been able to be a coach in the NAFSA Academy back in Academy 4. So I know firsthand the experiences and the benefits that NAFSA has provided. Um, oftentimes, uh, as professionals, we kind of take for granted those, those organizations that represent us, uh, particularly those uh, that represent us in times of difficulty, and certainly NAFSA during the Trump administration had its work cut out for us, but they were one of our advocacy champions uh, to fight the good fight for international education. So I say all of what I say with a little bit of hesitancy, but I know having worked on regional NAFSA committees when planning regional conferences, how important to our regional conference, our regional uh, NAFSA organization's budget uh, the, uh, and these annual conferences are to uh, keeping that organization moving. Particularly at the national level, you know uh, of the many, uh, many different uh, organizations, uh, service providers that make up the exhibit hall and pay membership fees and pay uh, large uh, fees to attend uh, the, the annual NAFSA conference. Uh, those in-person events have, have become almost essential in many uh, international educators' lives. This past year has, has wrecked that model, frankly. Uh, we haven't been able to do that and we haven't been able to meet in person. And the upcoming virtual annual conference for NAFSA, uh, even with the early bird rate, seems a bit 
outrageous uh, given the circumstances, but understanding um, also how important that annual conference is to giving NAFSA a budget to work with throughout the rest of the year in terms of staffing and all, all of those uh, different things, advocacy work and that. But um, the double push in the last month when we got messages from NAFSA leadership about not only you got to come and support support the conference, support us by coming to the uh, by attending the virtual conference. Uh, you also have uh, the double whammy. Oh, we need to, you to renew your membership early uh, because we need the money to keep going. So it's a, it, it was a, a kind of a desperate plea, uh, and I I I get that, but I, I can in good conscience spend the money, particularly as a as a as a consulting firm, a smaller business, a one-person shop, really, I don't have uh, necessarily that kind of uh, uh, money I'm going to devote to something that, frankly, I'm not going to get as much out of as I would as if I were in person because it's the in-person networking that uh, has really been the real value add for me, not the presentations I've been able to do or anything like that, the vendors I've been able to meet. It's that in-person networking that I've been able to uh, find the most value of, of uh, attending NAFSA conferences, particularly in recent years as, a, as, a, as an independent member not affiliated with the university. So it's, what, it's easier, frankly, uh, when you're, you're at an institution uh, to because it's not your money necessarily that's paying the bill for a NAFSA conference. It's the institution's money and you oftentimes have budgets. Obviously budgets have been under under uh, a microscopic review and there have been cuts and professional development is often one of the first things cut. Uh, I get that uh, and that's another valid reason why a lot of institutional institution members aren't able to, uh, to certainly attend the virtual conference this year and are maybe hesitant about uh, even renewing memberships. So there's a lot of competing forces um, and NAFSA's not the only one in this. Um, International ACAC is having uh, their second virtual annual conference. Uh, instead of at a, at a physically at a university host, as they have done for for years, decades, uh, they are now um, this year doing a second virtual conference, but they're charging a fee this year. Uh, they didn't last year, uh, so there it's not nearly as exorbitant as the NAFSA fee is. It's for international ACAC. Their in-person conference is usually three days. Uh, NAFSA's is usually four or five days, depending on whether you come for pre-conference workshops, which you also would need to pay an extra fee. So the value of these uh, vir uh, virtual events certainly takes a lot of getting used to. Everybody's done virtual events, um, whether it's been uh, presentations, fairs, one-on-one uh, -on -one visits with high schools, uh, or even some virtual conferences that they might have attended in, in the last few months. Uh, Education USA has kept their forum free. Uh, in the fall, in the summer, late summer. So I'm encouraged by that, and certainly their willingness to open it up uh, to others beyond just institutions and Education USA advisors. So I, there are good players out there. Not saying NAFSA or International AC aren't bad players. I know leadership on both levels uh, at those organizations, uh, but and I know International ACAC well less so for. Uh, the NAFSA uh, has a much lower membership fee, $75 to $100 for uh, an individual member as opposed to six, five, $600 for NAFSA uh, for membership. So it's, in a scale comparison, NAFSA is certainly at the top in terms of uh, fees that they're charging and 
uh, international ACACs toward, towards the middle to bottom of, uh, in terms of the extent of the fees. But uh, you look at what the how if you've done virtual conferences this past year and you've been working from home, um, is it really? Because uh, when you go for physically go to a conference, you you tra there's travel time, there's hotel, you don't have the hassle sometimes of that. Uh, but uh, that's also our, it is a getaway. Uh, it's a set of separating yourself from your regular day to day. And I've, I've found in conversations with other professionals, not in international education, that this is a really an issue is uh, in the corporate world in terms of uh, in the last year going to a, a virtual conference. Uh, it's hard to separate and make time for uh, those events. And there's been some good articles on how that can be done and how you can manage your time effectively and all that. But uh, the, the paying those fees to attend a virtual event when you're still working from home where you don't have that experience and it's not anything different than what you've really been doing it's hard to separate separate that out uh, and to pay over pay those fees to make that happen so uh, there's, there's obviously trade-offs and uh, that's something that um, I don't think NAPS has done particularly well uh, in the last year they are doing a uh, uh, all regional summit in the fall which I think is a nod to the need to have something that's available to all members not just uh, not just this annual conference where you're going to really pay through the nose to be able to attend uh, as, a, as an individual if you're not paying, if an institution's not paying your way. So I want to, uh, I, I bring this question up, how should we network moving forward? Because uh, there's a couple of different uh, le levels to this. Uh, there's an article we put out in, uh, we alluded to in the uh, newsletter, our SMIE, uh, all the SMIE news fit to share that uh, comes out on Mondays, and you can subscribe to that. I dropped the link in the comments section here on the Facebook page uh, that allows you to get that subscription. But one of the stories was, uh, don't, I'm not going to be posting the link to today, but it's on that newsletter, uh, is about the future of recruitment and how that's going to change moving forward. It's from a uh, counselor at uh, one of the UWC schools in Singapore, and he makes the, a very valid point about, uh, well, do we really... The, what we've been doing this past year and figuring out how, how to do virtual, uh, there's been some positives, there's been some negatives, and but it's been a, a very much uh, a monotony, uh, very different, and lots of uh, time and energy goes into setting up these events and hosting these events and meeting with the counselors. Different, obviously, than the physical visit because that takes perhaps a lot more work. Uh, but the the challenge is moving forward. Are these going to be sustainable uh, when we if we are able to return to in-person visits and recruitment travel, which most travel warriors would say, yes, we have to do get back to that eventually. And I might be leaning that way, but I, I certainly understand both arguments. There are those that I've I've worked with that are now at the point that say, hey, they're 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 more concerned about their carbon footprint institutionally, and they look seriously about. Uh, overseas recruitment travel as a as more of a luxury that they they don't necessarily need to do anymore because of the uh, the impact on um, on the globe and so they're they're putting their money and their principles where their mouth is there and I get that that makes a lot of sense uh, so what can we do and on the networking side there's there have been free virtual events and I support those like with the EduSA forum but one I do want to at least um, make make sure it's on your radar is uh, Connect Ed's uh, Gather uh, Network and Engage event that's coming uh, June 23rd and 24th. It's uh, branded as the 2021 Global Ed Gathering. Uh, and it's it's a free event for all to participate. And this is put up by Gen Next Education 
and those that uh, know Girish uh, Balola. Uh, he is, uh, has been initially was focused primarily on uh, recruitment tours and internet Indian student recruitment for U.S. institutions connecting co uh, secondary schools and uh, colleges and universities in the states. Uh, but he's broadened his uh, his uh, kind of remit, uh, and so a lot of it is practical, practically driven. Uh, that he hasn't been able to do the tours to India, obviously last year or even this year, uh, particularly now with India in the midst of a, a real dire situation with relates as it relates to COVID. So he's put together um, and has had a team working on um, kind of an online platform, 24/7 approach to. Uh, to bring students and counselors and university reps together, uh, but he's, he's also doing that's that's available um, separate separately from this. But this is uh, something that I think is of, of particular value. Uh, this event, uh, the networking event of the year, he's calling it Register for Free. Uh, so it's something that I think is worth considering. It's a two-day event. Uh, it's a free event, but it's an opportunity for. Uh, sec secondary school counselors and uh, educators on the school side to get to get together with university and college representatives and uh, network that way. So it's a it's 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 niche in that regard because it's not university partnerships. It's not uh, uh, as far as it's being billed. It's mostly a secondary school to college and university. So for those of you who are looking at undergraduate recruitment, uh, this international recruitment, this is a meeting that uh, is well worth considering. It's free. It's two days. Uh, and it is uh, uh, it, it's worth worth looking at in, in any case. Uh, so I'm I'm certainly planning on attending, but I, I certainly want to uh, let you know that I, I I'm not completely discounting what uh, NAPS is doing. Uh, I think their fall event is going to be uh, successful in that regard. I think the, our regions uh, in regions uh, in region six. Instead of having individual state meetings, we're having a joint free uh, two-day uh, NAPSA thing. In fact, right around the time of this uh, 2021 Global Ed Gathering. So I'm really uh, interested to see and hear your thoughts on what networking is going to look like moving forward. We, we will get back to some form of in-person meetings, maybe not this year, maybe not next year even. But uh, there is, this is a concern for professionals that uh, will continue to exist moving forward. It's not something that's going to just die. Um, but we, we all need it and uh, we all need that personal connection uh, in order to grow as professionals and uh, to grow what we do uh, in our business and in our, in our profession in international education. So a lot to say on that uh, and I'll be interested to see how this global ed gathering goes uh, in, later on in June. So let's shift gears now and talk about question number two. How well are we treating international students in this country? This is a theme that really speaks to the heart of who we are as international educators, I think. And when you look at this country and what we've been through in the last four years with regards to anti-immigrant rhetoric, uh, with regards to a president who uh, really did not see any value and it was only speaking words if, when and if he had to give a speech that had to do with things international, it always was about America first, not about our impact on the world, our positive influence that our educational institutions have on future world leaders, any of that. That was uh, never even crossed his mind uh, and as a, as a leader of our country and a leader of the free world, whatever that means these days. But I, I think what's important, because it hits at the core of who we are as international educators, and particularly on the inbound international side, it's 
uh, taking care of those students that come to our campus because if we don't and they have bad experiences, they go home and they tell friends, uh, that only backfires on us if we're not properly caring for these students while they're in our, good, in our care, uh, in our, on our campuses, in our, um, in our, in our worlds. So the, uh, there have been a couple of articles that have popped up this past week. One uh, that's uh, a procedural change that actually shows, I think, in a very positive way, how uh, as a country we value international students. And that was uh, the U.S. Department of Education's decision to uh, announce more than $36 billion in emergency grants for post-secondary education under the America Rescue Plan Act Higher Education Emergency Relief Fund. Uh, and that's a long acronym, uh, H-E-E-R-F-3, uh, Roman numeral three. And the, the positive news that's come out of this, uh, this new uh, uh, government uh, pro relief program uh, for higher ed is, is that for the first time, international students will be eligible for that assistance at an institutional level. So that is really encouraging uh, to hear this coming out of the, uh, the administration. And I, I think they're beginning to reverse that tie uh, of and their days, their actions on day one and two of uh, of their administration when they after the inauguration certainly reflected that in terms of sending a message to the world that we do actually want international students here and we care for them. Uh, and here is a very real way of saying we're putting our money where our mouth is because uh, the the dollars that international students who have not previously been able to access federal money uh, for in, in terms of um, COVID-19 relief uh, in terms of the financial impact uh, the pandemic has had on international students, on their families back home that haven't been able to uh, maybe afford uh, the full cost of education. A lot of institutions, frankly, and to, to their credit, have stepped up and been able to provide uh, emergency funds to students. Uh, some of that is, is well received and, and helps get students through, but some of it is just smaller dollars and is limited and is not going to cover huge, huge gaps. So there are other things in, 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 uh, in the regulations that do allow for emergency work authorization for students to, to work off campus. Uh, for uh, to help pr provide for their their day-to-day -day needs but some of this welcome re welcome relief from from the US government I think speaks uh, is an important step in that direction of showing we are valuing uh, international students here and that in a real and concrete way financial way in times of pandemic uh, and that's that's important I think an important sign that the uh, federal government is making that uh, a priority uh, finally, uh, certainly we haven't had that as a priority in the government for the last four years. So it's welcome, welcome news to be sure. Uh, and the other article that reflects well on this this topic or speaks uh, directly to this topic is from the president of Franklin Marshall College, a small liberal arts college, very well regarded uh, institution, uh, liberal arts institution, but also a very strong record in international education, uh, bringing international students in from the diversity of countries and uh, having funding available to help the, the neediest of those uh, that are applying um, get there and sustain their time there. Uh, I, I bring this article up because it focuses on something I talk about all the time, and it's the relationships, the personal relationships we need to have to be successful in what we do. Uh, whether that's uh, working with your counselor networks, your Education USA networks, potentially agent networks, 
those only succeed when you're, you have strong relationships with those partners. Uh, when you are invested in them, they are invested in you, and it's a two-way street. I think we get into the trap that um, we going down the road, and there are institutions I'm working with that are newer to international admissions and international student recruitment that don't know where to start, frankly, and uh, they, uh, there may be potential to uh, one, one, one proposal that was to spend six figures with a particular vendor that would get them um, no guarantees of students, but uh, they would pay a hefty fee for those, for those students to, to, to be even prospects and enter into their, uh, their own uh, systems, uh, internal institutional systems. That's not a, a, a sustainable model. That's certainly not a relationship-based model. That's a, here, we're going to pay you money, we want students in return model. And that's, an international education is not uh, a sustainable model, frankly. So what I, you know, with all the, my clients I work with on the institutional side, this is the foundational to how, if they're not willing to go down this road and approach it through a relationship-based uh, and personal, per, personally investing in the relationships that need to be developed to sustain uh, an institution long-term in international education and be strategic about it, uh, I'm, I, I won't work with them on those kind of big projects. Uh, I need, I will, I, I, will, I will spend my capital, my, my personal time, my professional time working with institutions that see value in the long term, in building relationships, and not just in it for the short-term gain and uh, getting a class in in the fall. Uh, those levers can be pulled sometimes here and there uh, to force small, immediate results. But if you want to grow consistently, to grow double your enrollment in five years, you need to be intentional about the partnerships you are setting up and professionally uh, uh, and build professional relationships that show to these third parties, uh, the school counselors, Education USA, agents you work with, other service providers you work with, that your intentions are to bring in students that are going to benefit your institution, but also that you can invest in. Uh, and you show that through your actions, through uh, how you take care of those students from the time that their initial prospects to the time that they're arriving on campus as enrolling students to the time they're going for their uh, preparing for jobs after graduation, helping them with internships and job placements and welcoming them into your, your alumni community all the way through that student journey. Uh, making that journey transparent, making that trans, uh, journey tra uh, seamless for your international students and showing your care for them throughout that process. Those are the campuses that get that, that I get excited about, that I want to work with, that see the long-term gain of pursuing a path that really shows uh, institutionally that they are committed to international education, that it's not just a, we need more international students. Everybody needs more international students unless you're one of the elites that can really handpick uh, the students from around the world that they want on their campus because they have limited incoming first-year classes. But they get tens of thousands of applications and they don't need to be uh, worried about more, more, more. They pick the ones that they need for their campuses. Um, this, is, this is, I'm talking about the most, the, the greater majority of institutions in the United States that are, are grappling with the issues of how do we sustain an international education, a strategic international enrollment management plan. Uh, and I've talked about the six P's of strategic international enrollment management before. Uh, I'll have an article coming out soon, my fifth article uh, in the six P series on personalization, and we'll talk about that. And this relationship piece is really central to it. 
And part of that is what the president of, um, of Franklin and Marshall, Barbara Altman, says in her, uh, her piece in University Business, that it really, internationally speaking, particularly now dur uh, during this pandemic, she speaks directly to the, the kinds of issues that I've, I've been talking about for months about how important it is that you are communicating effectively with your prospective students, with your current students as well, about how the pandemic is impacting the university, the, uh, how the university is then caring for, and Core College in this case, caring for, for the students that are already on campus, but also coming to, coming to campus. And those are, you show that care in terms of investing in the relationships you have with them on all levels. Uh, again, from prospect, prospective student to current students to alumni to parents of current students uh, throughout the process. Uh, you, sh you show your worth to them, um, your, how much you value your, their students, the students themselves. Uh, and that is really speaks volumes for your institutional commitment and those small things you do today can have long-lasting positive impacts uh, when it's driven by this desire to invest in them as people, to invest in uh, their future uh, and developing, helping them develop what they need to develop to be successful long-term. And that's our role as institutions, is to help provide uh, a pathway to success for everybody who comes to our institutions. And the more we, we focus on that and that people-focused nature of what we do as really the core, and my six Ps is all about that. It's about purposefully picking people uh, in who, how throughout the processes that you have in your day-to-day, -day, it's prioritizing them. It's making the people that you're dealing with, the students, uh, the staff, uh, everyone around you, your priority. And that's, that's, an, that's, that's not easy to do. It, it frankly takes a fairly... Uh, all-encompassing approach to, to how you uh, do international education and how you conduct yourselves as a university president. So I really appreciate this kind of a message and I understand why people love working there. Uh, and a number of colleagues that I've known have worked at Franklin and Marshall, they have nothing but positive things to say about the, the ethos of the school. And those are the kinds of schools that really are, are the shining beacons for, for the rest that want to go down that path and that want to invest uh, in relationships and invest in the students and in all sorts of different ways. And I, I really tap my hat, tip my hat to uh, Franklin Marshall for the outstanding work that they're doing there uh, and leading by example. Now, as we wrap up today with this final topic, it's one that we've, uh, we've touched on several times in the past couple of months and that will continue to be a theme, as I've mentioned earlier, and that's to mandate or strongly recommend vaccinations uh, for this fall? That's the question. That's the $64,000 question that uh, colleges are, are answering right now. And there's a, a few articles that are uh, popped in the last week that I, I think are worth mentioning. And I'm thinking about even adding a visas and vaccination section to my newsletter because there's gonna be so many more stories like this over the coming months. First is from The Hill, and it's written by Alan Goodman, a president uh, and CEO of IIE, Institute of International Education, and Harris Bastides. I'm not, not familiar with who he is, but uh, it's, a, it's a, an article that says, let's give vaccinations for international students the old college try. Uh, and he, Alan, uh, who I've known for a number of years, he makes the case that um, there, we're in a very privileged position in the United States where, regarding vaccinations where we're 
providing uh, more, more vaccinations are available than we have people to take them right now. Uh, and that is something that we're in the process of making these available worldwide. We're sending 20 million AstraZeneca uh, vaccines, which ironically are not on uh, FDA's approved list of vaccinations. We're sending, we have 20 million of those stored up. We're sending them abroad. Uh, we're also going to be doing that with other, uh, some of the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines as well. Going to be sending those abroad as well. Uh, came out this past week. But uh, when it comes to our international students, uh, many of them don't yet have access to vaccines in their home country. Uh, some in China have relatively few. In India, they're only at about five, ten percent of, of the population vaccinated, which is huge numbers. But for students, there are very few that are, are getting that. Uh, in some African countries, they're starting to roll out, but they're certainly not widespread yet. Um, talking to a colleague in uh, Nigeria yesterday, uh, she uh, said that uh, they are getting the, typically the AstraZeneca is the one um, uh, that's available uh, for their citizens, but not broadly yet. You have long waits. Uh, you can't make appointments in advance like we are, have the pleasure and luxury of doing here in the U.S. Some, I was sharing with her that in some places in the U.S. now you can walk into a, a CVS or a Walgreens and, uh, and you can have, have a sh get your shot, first shot right away. Uh, it's just that available. So uh, this article makes the point for, from Alan Goodman that uh, it, we should be making these uh, available for international students as well, and many institutions are already planning that. But it's really the legwork that needs to happen now to really make it a reality for the fall. A couple others, uh, obviously, we, we, every week we post the updated numbers from, uh, of institutions that are requiring vaccines. Uh, it was over 350 last uh, Friday when we got the link. Uh, that's, I think it's 375 now. Um, there are some colleges that are not mandating vaccinations because they don't, and this, there's, some, there's some good reasoning behind this, they don't want to mandate something that is for emergency use only, and all three of the vaccines that have been uh, approved in the U.S. by the FDA are for emergency use only, not as standard like a MMR vaccine or uh, tetanus shots or any of those other things that we can get uh, for that have been around for decades. Uh, this is something that's different. Uh, it's for the ones that are approved have been emergency use only. There's some signs that maybe they are moving to to uh, making um those available, some of those vaccines available for regular use. So I know some parents are real hesitant about untested vaccines, about uh, getting it for themselves. And even though uh, Pfizer is now available for 12 and above, uh, ages 12 and above, some are hesitant to uh, get uh, inoculate their kids for something that's not been uh, thoroughly tested and is on a regular approved list. So there's there's some of that. And uh, two, uh, two systems, uh, CUNY and SUNY systems in New York, are not going to require it, uh, a vaccination inside higher ed story on this. Uh, they're, they're to require it only if the FDA makes that change to regular approval, not just emergency use only. Uh, and there are some other, other state systems that may be looking, at, looking to go that route as well. California, uh, there, are some, uh, there are some schools that s smartly uh, are moving towards uh, uh, accepting students who've been vaccinated uh, by uh, for any of the by any of the WHO kind of global uh, uh, health organization uh, for approval of vaccinations and one of the Chinese vaccinations Sinopharm has been approved. Uh, there's some other ones in here that uh, 
Obviously, the AstraZeneca one, Oxford, uh, bio, uh, Oxford, Oxford, out of Oxford, that's been approved. Uh, there's others as well that are looking at that because as, as, a, as, a, as a nod, again, another nod to how well we're treating students uh, is how we are allowing their vaccines back home to, to potentially cover them here as well uh, for in-person in, in study. So some great articles this week on the vaccination. Surely it won't be the last, uh, but I think there's a lot of planning and logistics that need to go into place now uh, if you are going to be vaccinating uh, students upon arrival if they haven't had a chance to be vaccinated yet. So we'll keep an eye on those developments as, as we get closer to arrivals. But I can't emphasize enough how important communicating what your policies are going to be to your prospective students. And we had this last fall with opening schedules for U.S. institutions, and we're going to have it this fall for uh, vaccinations as well as, uh, but as well as most going back to in-person, what those health and safety protocols are gonna be and how well you're communicating that to your overseas audiences and all students, frankly, is gonna matter most. So that's what we have for you today on the Midweek Roundup. Thanks again for making us a part of your weekly uh, international edification and we look forward to uh, chatting with you again soon. Cheers. <music>